listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 140. We are talking in this edition about the Republican tax bill, what it will do to us, and while it's a smorgasbord of terrible ideas, we're getting some insights from grad workers who are mobilizing to defend higher education, and the CWA union about how it will affect labor. But first, the news. The concept of a universal basic income, or UBI, has long been the stuff of futuristic fantasy in the world of economic theory. But what once seemed like a distant dream just got a bit closer as our northern neighbor launches one of the biggest UBI experiments in North America. Roughly 4,000 people in Ontario will begin receiving a major income subsidy if they meet a threshold of earning about less than $26,000 annually for an individual or up to $48,000 for some couples in some areas. It wouldn't be a complete income substitution. They would still have to work. They would get about $13,000 annually per individual, plus up to half of what they earn from working. So basically, it caps overall income, but provides a baseline of economic security for all. This will allow researchers to see how people's economic circumstances and behavior change in a community where basically everyone is making a limited but more secure amount. Other experiments are underway in Oakland and Finland. Canada has experimented with UBI schemes in the past, but this recent initiative comes at a time when more businesses, politicians, and technologists are thinking about living in a post-work world where technology renders whole sectors of the workforce basically obsolete. We need to create a new safety net in a way of sustainable survival. Some say it creates a disincentive to work, others say it's inevitable. But authorities in Ontario say they are already seeing positive changes in the behavior of their community members thanks to the renewed economic stability they're experiencing. As one official told the AP, quote, moving to a compassionate system that gives you enough money where you can grocery shop, buy a winter coat, and get some boots too, that has made such a psychological difference in the mental positioning of vulnerable people. The question for UBI proponents is, beyond helping the most vulnerable people in the given area, how do you scale this up? And whether it will take more of a socialist approach in providing generous welfare benefits, such as safety net benefits like health care, child care, etc., or will it create a more libertarian system where people ultimately become less dependent on the state itself for services and income is distributed on a more freewheeling basis by individual? Ontario's pilot project offers a moderate combination of benefits and limits, and it may soon be that many of us are living in a world where we have to get used to living that way because our jobs will be supplying only one piece of our total income. Now, Canada, which also managed, by the way, to get universal health care while the U.S. has not, could be a pioneer in the region and could prove yet another model for the U.S. to follow as we move towards the future of work. Here at Belabored, we've gotten used to thinking of Black Friday as a day of resistance. In past years, we've talked to workers at Walmart who turned the retailer's biggest day into a day of strikes and protests around the country. The Walmart workers are still organizing. Our Walmart's latest campaign is targeting the company's purchase of hipster brands like ModCloth and its attempt to push those employees into the same conditions that Walmart workers have long faced. But this Black Friday, the big story was Amazon.com. Specifically, that was strikes at Amazon.com distribution centers in Germany and Italy. Thanksgiving might be an American holiday, but Black Friday deals are now being outsourced around the world. 
Amazon was offering big discounts for shoppers on Black Friday in Germany and Italy, but its workers have struggled to get decent pay and conditions. The same story in Germany and Italy as it is here in the U.S. Germany is Amazon's second biggest market, and it has 11,000 warehouse workers in the country. Workers at six of those distribution centers went on strike on Friday, not the first strikes for the German service sector union Verdi and its Amazon workers. The world's biggest online retailer wants to achieve record sales on this day, but employees have to produce record performance not only on this day so that everything runs how Amazon wants it, said Verdi board member Stephanie Nunzenberger. In Italy, it was the first strike for workers at Amazon's first distribution center built in that country. Three unions issued a joint statement that more than 500 Amazon workers were going on strike on Friday and also going to strike from overtime for the entire month of December, which might cut significantly into the holiday shopping squeeze where, of course, workers are pressed to work faster and harder to make sure that everybody gets their holiday gifts. As an aside, I had not realized that Black Friday had been exported to countries that don't even celebrate the holiday the day before it, a fascinating example of how global capitalism operates. In any case, Amazon workers in the U.S. did not join their overseas colleagues yet, but there's always next year. And now the latest from the Trump immigration saga comes from way back in the 80s. When he's been criticized about his immigration agenda, Trump's opponents often charge that he himself has exploited immigrant labor for many of his businesses. Trump has always insisted that he's done so by the book, but as with many things in his agenda, it seems to be an alternative fact. If we go back to the 1980s, A story reported by the New York Times shows that when Trump was just then an emerging real estate power broker in New York City, he was building his iconic Golden Trump Tower with the sweat of undocumented Polish laborers. He hired about 200 Polish workers undocumented to work 12-hour shifts under extremely harsh conditions without appropriate safety protections. And they got paid as little as $4 an hour, or even less, according to the New York Times. That was well below union wage, of course. So why has this only come to public light now? There's a key settlement for $1 million that was kept confidential, but it was recently unsealed in response to a Media Freedom of Information Act request. We now know that the construction workers' union played a key role in bringing the claims against Trump after it was discovered that he had hired the workers through an inexperienced and incompetent contractor. Surprise, surprise. And the union intervened after a separate Labor Department wage and hour case had awarded the workers a quarter of a million dollars in back pay. Remarkably, the case spent 15 years in litigation, and Trump consistently denied that he knew anything about it, said he knew nothing about any, quote, illegal workers. He never even saw the Polish workers, he said. But, as you might expect, that was also an alternative fact, since he actually deployed his lawyer to intimidate the workers on his behalf by threatening to call the immigration service and have them deported. So we see... 30 years earlier, already his pathological lying and his ferocious anti-immigrant mentality taking root well before he became leader of the free world. By the way, Trump, as leader of the free world today, he's on very good terms with Poland's right-wing, fiercely anti-immigrant government. Go figure. Unfortunately, the settlement didn't do the workers justice. One of the laborers who later ended up with cancer told the New York Times, We were working 12 to 16 hours a day. 
were paid $4 an hour. Because I worked with an acetylene torch, I got $5 an hour. We worked without masks. Nobody knew what asbestos was. I was an immigrant. I worked very hard. But at least that workers got his citizenship in the mid-90s, 15 years after the incident happened, and about 15 years before his former deadbeat boss began campaigning for the office of the chief executive of the United States. We're talking on today's show about the Republican tax bill and the ongoing battles to stop the upward distribution of wealth. We spent plenty of time this summer on this podcast and everywhere else talking about the Republican health care plan, or I should say the health care repeal plan. There has been some discussion of the fact that the tax cuts bill also includes t- cuts to Medicaid, repeal of the Affordable Care Act individual mandate, and other attacks on health care. But there has not been nearly enough coverage of the other health care crisis happening right now, which is the lapsed funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program, otherwise known as CHIP, and community health centers. That funding has officially run out, and five states are going to be out of money for health care by the end of December. More than half of them will be out of money by March. That is insurance for 8.9 million children and 370,000 pregnant women, as friend of the show David Dayan noted at the New Republic. And 1,400 local clinics that provide care for poor people have already had their federal funds cut off on September 30th. This will lead to hiring freezes, layoffs, and more. But most importantly, it is going to cost millions of people, again, access to health care. This is yet another example of how utterly non-functional, I would say broken, but they're doing it on purpose, Congress is these days. Republicans wanted to pass an extension to these vital programs, but they wanted to take the money out of the Affordable Care Act, naturally, because they're looking for any backdoor way to hack into it, as a tax bill clearly shows. Democrats refused, and now there is an impasse. So Dayan writes... But the money is right there for the taking. It turns out that Republicans are considering legislation that gives nearly all of its $1.5 trillion in tax cuts to large corporations and the wealthy. If these groups were given, say, $1.476 trillion in tax cuts again, a reduction of 1.6%, there would be enough to pay for the continued health coverage for 18 million people. In fact, here's a better idea. You could just not give tax cuts at all to corporations that are flush with cash and instead use the federal government's prodigious resources to ensure that the poorest among us don't collapse in the streets from untreated illnesses. It's just a wacky suggestion about what our national priorities should be. I'm with Dave. Anyway, it's just another piece of our very piecemeal healthcare system, but it's worth remembering that every single one of those pieces has hundreds of thousands, millions of lives behind it, and allowing any of those pieces to fall apart can have very real consequences. As we speak, protests are going on around the country against the Republicans' latest attempt to shovel wealth upward at the very richest people in our country. The Republican tax bill has generated headlines like, quote, Senate GOP tax bill hurts the poor more than originally thought, CBO finds, from those raging communists at the Washington Post. It increases taxes on the parents of disabled children in order to give the owners of private jets a tax break. Taxes the deductions that teachers take for spending their own money on school supplies and taxes the tuition remission that graduate student teachers get as income as if it ends up in their pockets. That is just a start. To talk about what the tax bill means for labor, today we have a few guests. First up is Jody Calamine, the General Counsel for the Communications Workers of America. CWA's response to Trump's claim that the tax bill will put $4,000 in the pockets of working people? Put it in a contract. 
All right. And so we're talking today specifically about the strategy for tackling the problems with the tax bill that that CWA is putting forward. So for first off, for folks who haven't heard, can you explain what that is? Well, uh, we represent uh, around 700,000 workers across the United States, and therefore we have a keen interest in what is going on with this tax bill. The vast majority of the benefits of this tax bill are going to go to the very rich and the corporations, not to working people. Um, but the White House has been telling everybody not to worry. Uh, those benefits will trickle down the workers, um, and they've right. been very specific about it. They have said that if the corporate tax rate is cut from 35% to 20%, every household in this country will receive a $4,000 boost in their income per year. Right. Uh, so that's a very specific promise about how trickle-down is supposed to work. Right. Um, and we are going to take that promise literally. Uh, we reacted as a labor union should react by uh, writing to our employers, because what we do all the time is negotiate wage increases, we wrote to eight employers, and um, attached to those letters to a bunch of CEOs was a contract proposal, and it says, if the corporate tax rate is cut to 20%, every employee in our bargaining units will receive a $4,000 wage increase. So have you gotten any reactions from any of those uh, companies yet? Not yet. We gave them until Friday, December 1st to get back to us, um, but there's been no uh, official reaction yet. The New York Times did a story on this last week and appeared to have gotten some reaction from some of the employers who were dismissing it as a stunt, but it isn't a stunt. It's very serious. For once, we want to make sure that these promises that the White House and congressional leaders are making um, are, are put in writing and signed by the people who will actually pay this money. Right, and so just for – Example, some of the other stuff in the tax bill would actually be very bad for some of your workers. So I, I imagine you've done some thinking about exactly what this would could cost some of your members. Right. I mean, there's a the bill itself, right, about 75% of the bill's benefits are going to go to big business uh, and the very wealthy. Um, and those benefits are made permanent by this bill. The things that are for any individuals are temporary, and over the course of this bill, people who make less than $75,000 a year are actually going to see their taxes increase. So you know, working people are really being harmed by the bill, and it's not just the overall tax structure that they're trying to implement, but it's lots of little things. We don't happen to represent teachers, uh, but right. teachers have this uh, – deduction that they can make up to $250 when they spend money out of their pocket for classroom supplies. That deduction yeah. goes away under these bills. Uh, we do represent graduate students uh, at a few places. Um, they want to now tax uh, the tuition that grad students might receive in exchange for their work at a university. Uh, so this is money that the graduate student never actually sees. So once they want to treat that as if it's as if it's wages earned, but these same organizations behind this bill also want to make sure graduate teaching assistants cannot organize. Right. There have been many attempts to cut taxes over the you know past decades, with always with these promises that, as you said, it will trickle down to workers. And so, is this a new strategy? Have unions tried to do anything like this before? Um, and how is this time different? If so. As far as I know, we've never responded in such a direct way before. The promises made by this White House are so specific about how, uh, you know, what the outcome would be that 
it simply spurred us to try and hold them to this promise uh, and go to our employers and ask them to sign. There was there's another specific promise uh, right. that these guys made uh, on Paul Ryan's website. It's in big letters that this tax bill is going to prevent the offshoring of jobs. That's a big issue for us. Uh, we've been fighting offshoring for a long time. It's what the Verizon yeah. strike up and down the East Coast last year was all about. Uh, so they're saying this is going to prevent offshoring. Then we're going to our employers, uh, and in these contract proposals, there's a second provision. And it says, so long as this tax bill is in effect, they will not offshore work. Um, that the new jobs will be created here rather than overseas. Um, and work that is here isn't going to move overseas. Um, again, uh, that's just like the wage increase, this is something entirely within these corporations' control. Based on you know the tax savings they're going to enjoy under this tax bill, they get to decide what they're going to do with it. Uh, the politicians are saying this is what will be done with it. That's why working people should support this bill. And so we're going to those employers and saying, is that in fact true? And we haven't gotten a response. Right. And so just to be clear, overall the union is opposed to this tax bill. Yes. Uh, we view it as an outrageous money grab. It's not as if the $4,000 will make up for everything else uh, that this bill does to working people. Yeah. But if they're going to make these kinds of promises, we want it in writing. Yeah, and so CWA has been involved in various fights over various Trump policies over the last year. Tell me a little bit about how the members are reacting to all of this. Yeah, so the way uh, our members have been reacting to things uh, emanating from Washington in this new administration, I think they're, they've been very energized. They worked very hard to make sure that the uh, Affordable Care Act survived, uh, rather than seeing millions of families lose health insurance. Uh, uh, they rose up and participated in all the public actions uh, that, to, to stop that uh, repeal. It's been a very energizing moment. And I think one of the interesting things about this administration is that they got themselves elected with a lot of pro-worker rhetoric. Um, and I think a lot of people are starting to see the gaps between that rhetoric and the reality. This tax mm -hmm. bill is one of them. The ACA uh, attempts to repeal the ACA is another one. Uh, where they land on offshoring will be another test over time. The things that they're prioritizing uh, in Congress uh, send a signal to working people across the country. Uh, infrastructure was supposed to be a priority. That has taken right. a backseat. No one knows exactly when they'll ever get around to uh, that kind of job creation work. The appointments to various uh, agencies um, have not signaled an indication that they're looking to strengthen workers' bargaining power, which is actually what we need to be doing right now if we want to uh, uh, have wages rise uh, and the economy be more sustainable and fair for everyone. Uh, we need a lot more done on that front in terms of increasing workers' bargaining power. On the contrary, they seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Have any other unions, after you came out with this, signaled that they're going to do something similar? Has this gotten a reaction from sort of other I have not spoken to uh, – since uh, since we came out, I have not uh, not uh, had conversations about it directly with, with other unions. So I don't know if uh, they're going to plan to do the same thing. I can tell you what, if this back tax bill passes, I think everybody knows what their campaign is. Um, we have yeah. to – workers will have to organize and bargain for higher to, to get their fair share of these tax cuts. Yeah, are there any, you know, thoughts about 
places, um, strategic places where that might be, you know, where there might be room to have a, a big campaign around this, any contract fights that you've got coming up, maybe where this would be a, a place to focus. Um, well, with respect to the $4,000 wage increase, that's yeah. supposed to be a windfall, uh, right. an ultimate windfall uh, after it trickles down to workers on top of what we would be bargaining for anyway. So these right. contract proposals are in addition to existing contracts. Uh, right. They're modifications, it, you know, without affecting whatever raises we've already bargained for, uh, whatever the terms are today, we're supposed to get an additional $4,000. So if this tax bill were to pass and become law, yeah. um, I think you'll see uh, this being inserted in all the fights going forward because everybody is supposed to get a $4,000 wage increase. That's what Donald <laughs> yeah. Trump says. Right. Yes. And we will see how that goes. But in terms of, like, broader strategies and, and things that you're thinking about going forward, we're in this interesting moment where, as you said, Trump got elected on a lot of pro-worker rhetoric. On the other side of the aisle, your union was one of the ones that backed Bernie Sanders, that there's been, since his campaign, a lot of interest and a lot of actual, you know, pretty good victories for candidates running in a sort of, you know, Bernie Sanders, less populist, even democratic socialist mold. So it feels like it's both a moment where there's pr potential for a tremendous steps backwards, but also steps forward. So I wonder what you're thinking about in terms of bigger demands that it's possible to make right now for labor, for working people. I think it's pretty incredible uh, how quickly politics can turn uh, and that the opportunities uh, can arise long before uh, you may have otherwise expected them to act to enact real change. Um, and so pundits talk about, you know, a blue wave that may or may not come about, uh, but you do see uh, people being very motivated to get involved um, and to get out and vote. Uh, there were too few people who voted in the last election. Um, uh, I think you know, this will be, uh, you know, the direction of the, of the country will depend upon voter turnout. We have headwinds against us on that front that come from those who would like to keep people from voting <laughs> with various right. Uh, right. hurdles and obstacles to keep people um, out of the booths or to keep right. people from getting registered. So it's an uphill battle, but this year's elections in New Jersey and Virginia and various special elections that have, that have occurred indicate that there are people energized and voter turnout, I think, is coming. And that was Jody Calamine, General Counsel of the Communications Workers of America, or CWA. The Republican tax plan contains many frightening things, but one of the more obscure monstrosities hidden in the fine print is a repeal of a seemingly small tax break for graduate students that would essentially remove a tuition exemption and potentially dramatically raise the tax bill of tens of thousands of graduate students nationwide. Many of them are already struggling on poverty wages as teaching and research assistants, as we've documented here and belabored. Now a solidarity campaign is mushroomed across the country, linking students, colleges, and graduate worker unions in a broad opposition to the tax plan. 
and to defend higher education overall from the Trump agenda. In November, I spoke with Ian Bradley Perrin of Columbia University Graduate Workers Union at a rally for the unionization of graduate students to talk about what financial hardships students like him would face under the tax bill and about how the controversy in Washington intersects with his fight to unionize at Columbia, which is still embroiled in a clash over union recognition with the administration. I'm at the Mailman School of Public Health, and I'm in a joint program between the School of Public Health and the History Department in the School of Arts and Sciences. Um, and I'm a third-year PhD student, and I'm also on the bargaining committee of the Grad Workers Union, GWC. So I was self-funded in my first year, and my second year I was I benefited from um, the sort of qualifying tuition remuneration clause that is currently at issue. Um, and to me, it is like I am barely making ends meet as a grad student anyway. As a grad student um, makes, you know, I make about less than $25,000 a year. Um, and living in New York or really anywhere in the United States, that is not, that doesn't give you a lot of leeway. Um, the idea that I would have to pay tax on tuition coverage by my school is um, kind of unthinkable to me. If that was a condition, you know, if that was something I knew coming into my program, I would definitely think twice about um, going into a graduate program in the United States. Um, it wouldn't be affordable for me, and it wouldn't be affordable for most of the other grad students that I know. Um, it's a huge disincentive to go into, you know, higher education because not, you know, it's like grad students already take the opportunity cost of attending grad school for higher education to enter into an academic field where there's maybe not a ton of jobs um, for most fields. You know, so it, it's a high risk anyways, and then to have to almost be punished for um, achieving at that level, uh, you know, it's a huge disincentive. When yeah. it takes twice as long as a four-year degree, I mean, you're definitely looking at a lot of debt there when things build up, so. Yeah, 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 completely. Um, you know, my program is anywhere from five to eight years, depending on how long it takes me to research and what my funding is like. Um, and it, it, it does accumulate, you know, it, an eight-year doctoral program is not unheard of. And then there's that dismal academic job market you have to worry about after you graduate. So um... All of these changes would just make it so that only people who are already independently wealthy could enter into a graduate program and feel comfortable and feel like it's worthwhile. I think it would totally change the class dynamics and the accessibility of higher education. But incidentally, it'd probably be uh, an easier time busting unions for the administration. Right. And I mean, the school has also indicated in its letters to students that it would not be likely to raise the stipend values um, for students in, in if um, these tax plans or tax changes went through. So not only would students be spending much more money than before to go to school, but um, you know, the school wouldn't be taking any steps to uh, equalize or, or um, level out the playing field for people who weren't um, already independently wealthy. Um, so, it, and, and as a result, it would be much more challenging for students to unionize because, you know, it's the financial strains that being a graduate student puts on students that has been one of the major rallying points for um, the grad worker unions. Given that things may soon turn at the NLRB regardless, you know, uh, what what would happen in that case? As a union, are you sort of sketching out worst-case scenarios in terms of what the next steps would be for organizing and, and also um, working in solidarity with the other campus movements, that whether they have a union now or not? Yeah, I mean, I think 
it's clear that Colombia is relying on the NLRB to either delay as long as possible, which is sort of indefinitely making a decision or, or deciding on this appeal that they put forward. For us right now, what we're focused on is continuing to reestablish our majority support, um, which we demonstrated very strongly through the vote. But it's clear that we need to continue demonstrating that uh, semester after semester to sort of regalvanize the support that we had last year. Um, to put pressure on the school through other means, you know, we're in contact with um, various political figures in New York. You know, there's a number of uh, congressmen and senators that have voiced their support for the unionization movement. We're trying to um, pressure the administration from all ends and also demonstrate that working with us is a benefit for them. You know, um, us and the administration agree on the problems with this um, tax plan. That's, and, and having the support of the school behind its students would be really powerful in a moment like this, but instead the administration is continuing to put itself in opposition to its students. I think moving forward, we're, we're just going to be applying pressure from the outside because it's clear that the democratic will of the students is not enough for the administration at our school. Policy-wise, when it comes to the Trump administration, outside of this immediate issue of collective bargaining um, on your campus, there's points of agreement where you can actually find solidarity with a lot of their positions. Right. I mean, Colombia has historically been a really strong leftist organization with really progressive values. Um, and it's a shame that at this moment where that sort of moral authority is needed, they're absent. I think one of the most notable forms of hypocrisy is that on the one hand, the administration of Colombia um, is uh, sort of decrying the Trump administration's um, tax plan and uh, voter suppression and, you know, uh, a sort of litany of, you know, liberal issues, while on the other hand is um, denying its own students the democratic right to form a union, um, which has sort of grievous uh, financial impacts on most of the grad students at the school. My own story about how I came to the unionization movement um, was that I was paid late by nine months by uh, my school in my first year. And as an international student, I had no other source of income. Um, so I was having to pay rent, food, transportation, tuition. I was not funded in my first year. I had to pay my own tuition on time or else I you know, was given a penalty and there was interest added to it, while simultaneously the school failed to pay me for nine months, um, the money that I was supposed to be living on. And, you know, I'm not independently wealthy. I was, you know, surviving on the kindness of friends. And for me, it became clear that a union would be um, a, a form of recourse that I would have that would actually uh, be able to secure my payment and ensure that if it was late, I would get interest payments or, you know, some sort of remuneration for that. And I also spoke with Hannah Cuddam. She is a psychology PhD candidate at the University of Southern California. She was speaking from a nationwide grad tax walkout day of protest on Wednesday. For me personally, I'm in my fifth year, so it actually wouldn't affect me as much as it would my colleagues and people who are thinking about going into academia. Um, and here at USC, our tuition is pretty high as a private university, $1,500 per unit. So um, we could have up to $10,000 a tax bill um, based on the, um, the GOP 
tax reform bill that's currently being discussed. So um, when we heard about that here at USC, we were kind of flummoxed, for lack of a better word. It was like, why would you tax graduate students? A small group of people in America who already don't make that much money, what's the point of taxing us more? What is that actually going to give back to the government? Um, and also in here in California, we were kind of like, well, what do we do about it? Our administrators agree with us. Our um, school agrees with us. Our senators agree with us. Most of the Congress people, not all in California, agree with us. So doing something just in California kind of felt like we were screaming into a void. So we decided to plan a national walkout um, because we wanted to join in conversation with people from all over the country and show how graduate students could really come together to fight this bill. Because regardless of what you believe in, this tax makes absolutely no sense. So we wanted to start a conversation with fellow graduate students to do something about it. And, and the tax bill in general doesn't make any sense either. So we wanted to leverage that to fight the tax bill more generally. So we started the Facebook group, the Grad Tax Walkout Facebook group about two weeks ago. And overnight, we had about a thousand followers. And then we hooked up with Save Grad Ed, which are a group of um, students on the East Coast and the Midwest. And they had already, they were the ones who planned the rally at Ohio State. Um, and I believe Columbia as well, they'd already started doing rallies against this bill. And they had a lot of great tips and resources about how to organize. So they were really helpful in helping us reach out to um, all the universities that we could. And as of today, we had 60 universities doing some sort of demonstration or protest against this tax bill across the United States. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we should point out that this is just one of many terrible things about this bill. But uh, right. what do you think it says more broadly, without getting too conspiratorial about it, about yeah. like, how higher education is prioritized by this right. administration and sort of the mm -hmm. general anti-intellectual attitude mm -hmm. that lawmakers seem to take when it comes to just both the institution of education as well as just the culture surrounding yeah. academic pursuits in general? Right. And that's actually one of the major reasons why I wanted to, to do this is because a couple of weeks before um, this bill or before this walkout sort of happened, uh, I posted something on Facebook about this, the tax bill and what, what it was going to do to graduate students. And I didn't realize the post was public. And so I started getting messages like, good, stop taking money from the government, get a real job, um, things to that nature. And I was kind of shocked to think, you know, I'm that that is the rhetoric kind of surrounding what it means to be in graduate school. And I, so in terms of what this bill means for higher education, at the best, it's an ignorance of what they're actually doing. You know, maybe they don't understand the tuition waiver. Maybe people were like just saw it on a, a spreadsheet, but didn't really think about what it would actually mean for graduate students. At its worst, it really is an attack on higher education and critical thinking more generally. Um, you know, this is an administration that doesn't really believe in evidence and doesn't really believe in science. And that is what graduate students stand for. So I would like it not to be the case. I would like it to just be, you know, a calculation error. But um, it could very well be that it's try that this administration is trying to stop people from going into higher education and make it prohibitively, prohibitively expensive for almost everyone except for the independently wealthy to get an education. Right. I mean, it, it seems to be actually um, sort of uh, moving in the opposite, directly in the direction yeah. of the stereotype that they're putting out there about graduate exactly. students all being privileged. Exactly. Um, yep, you know, if you, exactly. if you if you want to make it only available to privileged people, this would be a good way to do it. Um, but well, my coworker actually made a really good point yesterday when we were talking to another uh, reporter about this: is that diversity is only helpful for science, and to have multiple perspectives, people from multiple backgrounds 
problem solving and coming up with answers to questions like how to cure cancer, how to detect Alzheimer's, how to um, develop uh, limbs for veterans who who've lost their legs. It only serves the United States, it only serves our country to have people from different backgrounds answering those questions. And so we really need to help people from all different backgrounds, all different levels of society to get into graduate education. And this is the exact opposite way to do that. The other issue is, too, that, you know, there's a subtext here, which is that this is essentially a labor issue, which is the the sense that for many of these people, I mean, the tuition waiver is what they get in exchange for their labor, right? It is it is a wage. Right. I'm not sure, you know, for all of their uh, supposed working class street cred, the, uh, the conservatives of this country understand that um, graduate students are workers. So I right. mean, what do you think the public needs to understand about how this is impacting people financially in terms of what they mm-hmm. get for the work that they put in on campus. Right. So I think that that's a really good point that we're called graduate students, but that's kind of a misnomer. Going to class is prob- is one of the least important activities that we do. I mean, it's important. We, we're getting an education, but we're also TAs. We teach classes. We teach undergrads. We grade papers. We um, conduct research and a lot of research. We spend a lot of our time doing that. We go to conferences. We collaborate with people throughout the world. I'm a clinical psychology graduate student, so I see patients. I see, I work in a low um, fee clinic. I've worked at the VA, both places of which do not pay me. Um, So my tuition waiver allows me to do these things. And I get a stipend um, for, for working and for TAing and all of that, but it's the stipend at USC is actually pretty, it's one of the better stipends and we make around $29,000 a year. So the tuition waiver allows us to be able to work, not just to study. And I think that, that was, that's something that really people don't understand. And we won't be able to work. We won't be able to do the things that are vital for, for higher education, um, as well as healthcare and public policy and science if we have to pay thousands of dollars in taxes on money that we never actually see in our bank account ever at all. Considering all the work that you guys put in at a discount and all the services you provide uh, as instructors, you you could say that you're subsidizing the higher education system. Totally. We are free labor, for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and if you, I don't know if, uh, you know, your institution is a union, but um, how have the unions been? We are not, actually. Right. So I guess, um, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking of uh, labor and rights, I mean, uh, where where do you think we might be as the conversation around graduate student unionization changes under this administration? I think it's something that we should definitely keep talking about and not something that I've been really been aware of before this. Um, I, I know that there is a group on campus, which I'm blanking on the name now, that is um, working to unionize graduate students at USC. And I think that now with this platform that we've built, I think it's definitely a conversation that we should start having. Yeah. Start recognizing yourselves as workers and getting your own administrations to do so exactly. as well. Maybe yeah. a good, good I, start. Yeah. I think a lot of us are just so happy and relieved to be in higher education and to get the positions that we have that we basically just take everything that we can get to be able to stay and to do the work that we do because we're so passionate about it. So I think that um, many people think there's not really an option to unionize, but if that's something that's available and something that is part of what we're talking about now, I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. Right. Um, certainly, uh, the more financial hardship people are facing, the harder it is to engage in politics and do organizing activity. Exactly. I, hidden costs. Right. I, I have had to do zero of my work the last two days to actually do this. And I'm, I probably will get fired if I don't get back to or get kicked out if I don't get back to it soon. So this definitely took 
you know, this is, this was a full-time job for the last couple of weeks on top of a full-time job that I already have. <clears throat> so at, well, three full-time jobs really, cause I do clinical work research and I teach. And that was Hannah Cottom speaking from the grad tax walkout rally to learn more, go to save grad ed on Facebook or Twitter. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. My pick for the week comes from The Guardian. It's called Tech Capitalists Won't Fix the World's Problems. Their Unionized Workforce Might. It's by Lizzie O'Shea. As we watch scandal after scandal unfold in Silicon Valley, from sexual harassment to white-collar crime to union busting to good old-fashioned rampant misogyny, you might wonder where all the critical voices are in the industry to break the culture of silence and corporate impunity. Maybe we ought to listen a little closer. Maybe we ought to look behind all these celebrity tech geniuses and billionaire venture capitalists and listen to the real people who make the industry work behind the scenes. O'Shea, a human rights lawyer, argues that while the older blue-collar industries where unions used to base their memberships are now being wiped out, there is one fast-growing industry that is ripe for some serious organizing and mass mobilization, the so-called techie class, the new proletariat of workers in the information technology sector. Just like the titans of industry and coal barons of the Gilded Age, today's Mark Zuckerbergs and Elon Musks of Silicon Valley hog the spotlight, but O'Shea observes that a lot of the Valley's real horsepower comes from the techies, the unsung heroes who are often extremely overworked and denied basic labor rights. Because their white-collar professional status often leaves them outside the confines of standards for wage workers, They're often very precarious, often deeply exploited for their intellectual investment in their production, and they're often not given any of the credit that the tech moguls on top often get. Tech workers in Silicon Valley are not all elite graduates with high salaries, O'Shea notes. Many struggle with cost of living issues that lead them to identify more with traditional sectors of the working class. Discrimination crops up repeatedly as an issue, particularly related to gender, with Google facing a lawsuit from former employees alleging disparities in pay and opportunities for real women, as well as an ongoing investigation by the Department of Labor. Relatively few U.S. tech sector employees provide parental leave, sick leave, and job security. These are bread and butter issues for unions, so it is no surprise that the work of organizing labor has gained new relevance. And the lack of diversity in tech is one place where it starts to look a lot like the old-fashioned industries of yesteryear, not so progressive. Now, it should be noted that the techies were not the pioneers of the tech unionization movement. It actually started a few years ago on the periphery of Silicon Valley with the subcontracted blue-collar workers who drive the Google buses, staff the Intel cafeteria, and clean the office towers of the big tech headquarters. Now it's finally moving into the supposedly elite echelon of workers who do the coding and engineering work that drives our gadgets and apps. One of the sector's leading labor campaigns, the Tech Workers Coalition, are highlighting these major labor issues as they campaign and organize in solidarity with other workers inside and outside of the sector who seek equity as precarious and marginalized workers in the new economy. In the words of organizer Eris Giovanos, Quote, we want to give a voice to tech workers as a separate entity from their companies and their corporate PR. 
as often rank-and-file techies are lumped in with the CEOs and entrepreneurs of the industry. Tech workers are also poised to shed light on the inner workings of an industry that has for too long gone under-regulated as it proliferates massively around the world and comes to displace many other industries. The tech industry's domination of South Asia's emerging economy has also spurred parallel unionization efforts there, with the new Democratic Labor Front, a branch of a left-wing Indian union. Like the Tech Workers Coalition, they are bringing labor solidarity with traditional unionism in order to push for basic job security, in an effort to fight layoffs as companies restructure to deal with global market shifts. Big tech has promised us a revolution, but so far it's a pretty one-sided one. Workers everywhere are getting displaced. People are fearing that their robot overlords will take over, violating everything from privacy rights to labor rights. Given how unequally the fruits of the digital age have been distributed, the production workers of our technology future are poised to innovate a new way to revive the old-fashioned labor movement. As O'Shea writes, technological development has made a small group of people incredibly wealthy. More power for workers, rather than billionaires, offers us the best chance for a future in which technology improves the lives of many rather than the few. And that echoes a very old slogan, one that's carried the labor movement for centuries. This piece dropped two weeks ago just after we'd recorded Belabored, and I double-arged because not only did I wish I'd written it, but I wished I'd gotten it into that week's show. No shade to that week's arg choice. Friend of the show and longtime organizer and purveyor of a most excellent email newsletter, Mindy Eser, writes at The Nation about the looming specter of national right to work and how labor can in fact still win victories under right to work. Coming from a ground level organizer who spends her days doing exactly what she recommends doing, I think this piece is particularly valuable. These days there's a lot of pontificating about what labor needs from 10,000 feet, but little of that is coming from rank and file members or on the ground organizers. Right to work, as Mindy notes, already covers more than half the states in the U.S. We are already in a majority right to work situation, and the time has come to think about what being on the offensive in this moment can look like. The right wing knows that unions are important. That is why it is determined to crush them. Yet we are in a moment of protest of a renewed class consciousness, even among Americans, that hasn't translated directly to union membership spikes. What gives? Mindy writes, quote, bargaining and filing grievances have become opaque processes that are divorced from workers' lives and removed from any kind of collective struggle. Rather than workers feeling like they run their union together, the model of service unionism creates a transactional relationship between two separate entities, the worker and the union. When our fights move from the shop floor to a conference room, we might negotiate a good contract, but we lose any hope of building a broad and militant movement. The union can't win every grievance or achieve a strong contract if those actions aren't part of a larger struggle. The service model of unionism will continue to fail because it's antagonistic to a true union vision, workers uniting to make change in their workplace and their communities, end quote. The top-down model translates into, well, what we see as the union theory of change, which is that it comes from the union leadership bargaining with the people at the top, whether that be the boss or democratic politicians. This also, by the way, explains why we've seen labor, in some cases, reluctant to go on an all-out offensive against the Trump administration. When you're used to bargaining rather than fighting, well, this is what happens. That theory of change, in case you had not noticed, has been failing. 
Mindy writes, quote, Democrats are generally moved more by unions' actions in the streets than by the deals they try to make behind closed doors. In 2008, unions collectively spent over $200 million to elect Barack Obama. He ran on the promise of passing the Employee Free Choice Act, which would allow workers to unionize through card check without needing to go to an election. It would also force employers to bargain with their workers within 120 days of a union's being formed, forcing bosses to stop dragging their feet on contract negotiations. Although union members knocked on countless doors for Obama, he couldn't bring himself to pass EFCA even with a Democratic majority in both the House and Senate. Instead of funneling our vanishing resources to the Democratic Party, which ignores us until the next election rolls around, we should put workers' dues towards organizing, and real, deep organizing. Not just helping workers vote for a union, but developing worker leaders who have the tools and skills not only to lead their shops, but to do transformative political work in their communities." End quote. She notes that fighting unions fight for that whole community, for the whole working class. They take on issues that matter to everyone, not just narrow contract fights. Single-payer health care, public funding for public schools. They prove that the union's victory is a victory for the broader community, which is, of course, the converse of the oft-cited union adage, an injury to one is an injury to all. That is it for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. We'll put links to everything we've discussed on today's show up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And while you're there, you can sign up to join our excellent sustaining members for just a couple of dollars a month. Five dollars a month gets you a sweet belabored tote bag. Thank you so much to everyone who's done this already. You've helped keep this podcast going for nearly five years. I can't believe anyone's wanted to listen to me for that long. (laughs) Seriously, I can't tell you how much this means to us. If you are a teacher or a grad student, Amazon warehouse worker, or facing healthcare cuts, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks for sticking with us. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.